Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number two, Genesis chapter one. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter one. I don't think it matters what version you have, it's probably page one. (laughs) In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was unformed and void, darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the water, and then God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness he called night. So there was evening and there was morning one day. God said, let there be a dome in the middle of the water and let it divide the water from the water. God made the dome and divided the water under the dome from the water above the dome and that's how it was. And God called the dome sky. And so there was evening and there was morning a second day. And God said that the water under the sky be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. That's how it was. And God called the dry land earth. The gathering together of the water he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said let the earth put forth grass and seed producing plants and fruit trees. Each yielding its own kind of seed bearing fruit on the earth. And that's how it was. The earth brought forth grass, plants each yielding its own kind of seed, and trees each producing its own kind of seed-bearing fruit. And God saw that it was good. So there was evening and there was morning a third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to divide the day from the night. Let there be signs, seasons, days, and years. And let them be for lights in the dome of the sky to give light to the earth. That's how it was. And God made two great lights. The larger light to rule the day, the smaller light to rule the night, and the stars. And God put them in the dome of the sky to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and rule over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So there was evening and there was morning a fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth in the open dome of the sky. God created the great sea creatures and every living thing that creeps, so that the water swarmed with all kinds of them. And there was every kind of winged bird. God saw that it was good. And then God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the water of the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. So there was evening, there was morning, a fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth each kind of living creature, each kind of livestock, crawling animal, wild beast, and that's how it was. God made each kind of wild beast each kind of livestock, every kind of animal that crawls along the ground, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, in the likeness of ourselves, and let them rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the animals over all the earth, over every crawling creature that crawls on the earth. So God created humankind in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, every living creature that crawls on the earth. And then God said, Here, throughout the whole earth, I am giving you as food every seed-bearing plant, every tree with seed-bearing fruit. And to every wild animal, bird in the air, and creature crawling on the earth, in which there is a living soul, I am giving as food every kind of green plant. And that is how it was. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So there was evening, and there was morning, a sixth day. We could spend several weeks just in Genesis chapter 1, but I'm going to assume that most of you have some basic knowledge of this chapter. And because what came first, second, third, and so on is plainly stated, pretty straightforward, there's not a lot of need for me to comment too deeply on those things after having read them to you. So I'm going to mainly deal with some issues that some of you might not have thought about too much. I'm going to deal mainly with spiritual principles and important foundational things that I call God's governing dynamics. And these are all laid out for us in in Genesis 1. And here there are principles and dynamics that never change. They're the basic building blocks upon which the Torah and then the Tanakh and finally the New Testament are built. Well, immediately in Genesis 1, we are given some of these fundamentals. And while these fundamentals are foundational and basic, they are hardly simple or easy to deal with. The first thing we must deal with is the word God. Because there are two primary ways in which we can know God. By His name and by His characteristics. Let me qualify that. By means of the four dimensions that make up our physical universe, length, width, height, depth, and then time, or in the words of physicists, space-time, we can know God only by His name and His characteristics. Yet, by means of the Holy Spirit, we can also know God in another way, which is only available in our era, to believers. This Holy Spirit way of knowing God incorporates an additional dimension, a fifth dimension of reality that doesn't exist naturally in the four-dimensional universe in which we live. And we're going to get into the subject of extra dimensions soon because far from being a sci-fi deal, or something only for the eggheads to contemplate. It's a significant help in framing some of the more difficult statements in the Bible that we need to take a hard look at. Well, in the earnest cry for world peace in our day, an interfaith movement is gained state. And the, the basis for this movement is that no matter what someone calls God, whether that's Buddha, Krishna, Brahma, or Allah, 
that were all essentially speaking about the same God, just from different cultural and language perspectives. This is not true. For not only are the names of each of these various gods and what they mean completely different, but the characteristics and attributes of each of these gods are also quite different. Therefore, it's impossible that they can be speaking about the same God. The true God is introduced to us in the first verse of Genesis, and we're also given the first of what's going to prove to be many of the unchangeable, sometimes inscrutable, characteristics and attributes of God. Now, the Hebrew word that our Bibles translate to God is in Hebrew, Elohim. Now, first we have to understand that Elohim is not God's name. We won't be advised of God's name until much later on in the Torah. Elohim is a title, and it's a plural title. In other words, plural is in more than one. Elohim and its various usages is a complex matter that we're only going to barely touch upon today. But we need to know for the moment that Elohim is a word that is not only used in the Bible to refer to the one true God, it's also occasionally used when speaking of the false gods. And as we talked about in the introduction last week, context is everything when dealing with the Hebrew language and culture. So with the introduction of this plural title for God, Elohim, instantly the door is opened to dealing with this incredible truth and paradigm. God is one, but he's also many. The I am at the end of the word Elohim makes this a masculine plural noun. In fact, as a basic Hebrew lesson, whenever you see the letters I am ending a Hebrew word, you know it's speaking of more than one. Yet there's another usage in Hebrew of the I am ending, and it's called the plural of majesty. That is, by adding the I am at the end of the word, it denotes greatness. Now Christians, rightfully so, take the word Elohim as indicating both greatness and plurality. And from this eventually grew our uniquely Christian concept of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three gods in one. Or or better, a single God consisting of three persons, persons or essences or manifestations. Now the use of the word Elohim does not in and by itself prove that God is plural. Rather, there are several more critical pieces of evidence that we will encounter that shows that God is indeed a plurality. Now, the next point of interest that we should take notice of is this matter of the first day of creation. There's an ongoing debate among scientists and theologians as to just what or how long a day was at the time of creation. And the primary basis for that argument goes something like this. How can God have created everything in six days? How can it 
be that Hebrews say by counting generations we find the earth to be nearing 6,000 years of age when all of the science says that the universe is billions of years old, around 15 of those billions in fact. Well, if we take a close look at what is said in the opening words of Genesis, some of the matter seems to resolve itself and we don't have to engage in scientific and theological debates. If you read carefully, you will see that the creation of the heaven and earth are not said to have occurred on the first day. Rather, they occurred at something called the beginning. And the first day was not necessarily the beginning. The first day could have been, the way it's worded, sometime later. If we take these opening words of Genesis literally, then the first thing that occurred on the first day wasn't the creation of everything, but the creation of light right, and its separation from darkness. The wording leaves open the distinct possibility that the heavens and the earth were created sometime before the first day of what we have dubbed creation. Now how long the heavens and earth may have sat there, lifeless, dark, chaotic, void, we aren't told. But at some point God decided to take the universe he created, spark it with life, and give it a new order. And he began that new process by creating light. And that's what we encounter on the first day. Now, there's absolutely no reason for me to try to defend the use of the word day. Often I hear people say, Oh, but the Bible says to God a day is as a thousand years. That's simply an idiom. All right, That means that God lives in a place without time. Not that during creation the length of a period of time called the day was a thousand years. And there's no proof, by the way, that the first day is generally meaningfully different in length of time than our current 24 hours, except to explain that the age of the earth, what it might be if the, six, if the first six days were very, very long, that might help some people's arguments. Oh, there is some proof that the earth's rotation may have slowed a little bit. Um, over the last several thousands of years. But a slower rotation of the earth today versus the past would make the days eons ago shorter than a current day today, wouldn't it? After all, one rotation of the earth is one day. If it takes longer to make that one rotation, then the day is longer. If the earth was spinning faster years ago, days would have whizzed by quicker. Right? Mm -hmm. Thus, if the earth's rotation is the issue, then long ago, the earth would have had to almost not rotate at all if one full rotation took what we count as a thousand years. One other thing. In case you might not have been aware... Hebrews, including today's modern Jewish community, have always counted a day as beginning at sunset and ending at the next sunset. Now, 
This is, of course, totally unlike our picking midnight as the start and end of each day. And it's also unlike our tradition that the morning time is the beginning of the day and the night time is the ending. Now, this difference in the tradition, uh, and rather the definition and, and method of plotting time has caused all sorts of interesting problems in attempting to ascertain with any degree of accuracy when certain biblical events happened. What we need to grasp for the moment is that the modern method of timekeeping is done mechanically. And for all practical purposes, it doesn't vary. There was an international agreement some years ago to have a central clock from which all clocks would harmonize. We don't need to observe stars or the moon to determine what time it is anymore. We could be in a tunnel a mile underground and if our watch is working we can know precisely what time it is indefinitely without ever observing the sky. But for the ancients, including the Hebrews, no such mechanical way of timekeeping was available. Time was determined by viewing the skies. When the sun went up and went down, when the moon appeared, when certain stars or groupings of stars appeared in the night sky. Using our mechanical system, we essentially divide the day into two semi-equal parts. 12 hours of day, 12 hours of night. That's why we change over from a.m. to p.m. and all this. All right? But of course that varies, and that'll vary a little bit according to seasons and latitudes. The length of a Hebrew day and night also varied from day to day and season to season because the proportion of time between daylight and darkness was constantly shifting. Yet, one full day was still what we would call 24 hours and one week was still seven full days. And at all times in the Bible, it's the Hebrew system of measuring days that's being used. So whether we're studying the Torah, the Tanakh, or the New Testament Gospels, we, we need to put aside this modern-day notion of timekeeping all right, if we want to understand the timing of events. Now, where did Hebrews get the idea of starting and ending a day at sunset? Well, look at verse 5. So there was evening... Then there was morning the first day. Which came first? Evening. All right. Evening marked the transition from one day to the next. And by the way, I don't think we're committing some terrible sin by how we moderns determine the start and end of the day, but it can get confusing when comparing it to the Bible. Now notice something strange. On the first day, God said he created light. Yet it was on the fourth day that God created the sun. Or as the Bible puts it, the larger light to rule the day. What gives here? How is it that God lit up the earth on the first day, but didn't create the sun until the fourth day? Where'd that light come from? There was no sun. And we found our first inconsistency. This gets interesting. In verses 3 and 4, 
The Hebrew word used for light is or. This word does not mean an object that emits light. Like the sun or the moon or the stars or a lamp. Light bulb. Rather, or means illumination, enlightenment. When the Bible says God is light, it says Elohim is or. The word is closely associated with life and joy and good. In fact, when we read about the first day, notice something that the Hebrew sages have hung their hats on for millennia. It says, God created the light, saw that it was good, tov. This light was divided from the darkness. Only the light's called good. Not the darkness. Let's move on down to verse 14 for a moment. Where it talks about there being lights in the sky to divide day and night. And in verse 16, when God says he created the larger light, the sun, to rule the day, a smaller light, the moon, to rule the night. We see an entirely different word used for light here. Here the Hebrew word is marot. That sounds a little familiar. It's where we get, the Hebrew, where we get our modern word meteor. Ma'or means an object that emits light. Ma'rot, O-T on the end, makes it plural. Lights. If I may use a poetic word. The luminaries, objects that illuminate. Like the sun, the moon, the stars, and lamps, and of course, meteors flashing across our sky. Now since the state of the universe before day one was darkness. Or at least it was darkness from the vantage point of somebody living on planet Earth. It must have been that darkness was an unsatisfactory state that otherwise caused God to create light. And at least darkness was apparently not capable of supporting life. And as we'll find as we get into later parts of Exodus and then Leviticus, things that go against or inhibit or terminate life are considered as against God. So when God created light or He created illumination, enlightenment, a basic requirement for life. And when God created the lights, Marot, He created objects that emit light waves. Light waves of a certain type allow humans and animals to use our light sensors, our eyes. And for plants, they can engage in their method of sustaining life, photosynthesis. In the book of Revelation... We're told that when God destroys this current earth, the old earth, and then creates a new one, there will no longer be marot. There will no longer be light-emitting objects like the sun or the moon. 
But instead, God will be our light, our illumination. It's this same type of godly light that's being spoken of here in verses 3 and 4. It's another kind altogether that's being spoken of in verses 14 through 16. Can you see that difference? Conversely, let's look at the word darkness. The opposite for this word is choshech. In Hebrew culture, this word was used as the total opposite of or, the opposite of illumination. So, choshech carries with it then a sense of blindness, of misery, of falsehood, of ignorance. It means something that leads to death and destruction. This is not a word that is the opposite of day. It's not a word that describes the natural and the good phenomenon of nighttime. Okay. In Hebrew, nighttime, night is lail. Lail. It it's an entirely different word than choshek. Choshek is negative in its nature. It carries evil spiritual overtones to it. Night, lail, is simply the opposite of day. It's neutral. It carries no negative or spiritual sense to it, except in the odd case where it's used metaphorically. So let's be clear. In verses 3 and 4, what God created was illumination and enlightenment of which He was the source. But it, also, it was also divided and separated away from what is the opposite of those things. Darkness, blindness, falsehood. Now what exactly was this illumination, this enlightenment? Now it could well have been that primordial essence of God that we call the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory. This mysterious illumination or glory of God, sometimes visible, sometimes not, that we read about in several places in the Bible. The illumination that is suitable for us to see by and apparently will not be necessary when the new earth is formed will come from God Himself. Now while I cannot be sure, I see no reason not to suggest that the light of Genesis that was in the first day of creation is the same light that is in the first day of the new creation as revealed in Genesis, uh, rather in Revelation 21 and 22. You can go there and read that for yourself. And it's also interesting that the spiritual counterpart of light, which is darkness, Choshek, is going to be absent in the new creation. In its purest spiritual sense, then, Light is goodness, darkness is wickedness. We're told that in the new creation, there will be only good, and wickedness will no longer exist. See that parallel? 
So in the new creation, we're told there is a complete absence of darkness. Instead, there's only light. But as certain as I am that what I've told you is correct, I readily admit there is some amount of speculation involved with it. Now, beside resolving the issue of light being created on the first day, even though the objects which make light were created on the fourth day, I'd like to point out that this is the first hint of a principle that's going to haunt us all the way through the studies of Torah. An abstract but very real principle that can be stated in words rather easily, but it's not so easily to grasp it or to imagine it in our minds. So be pre-warned, it's going to take some, some time and some study before this concept I'm, going to, concept I'm going to talk to you about starts to become real comfortable for us. Now as a point of reference, I've given this concept a name. The reality of duality. And basically the idea of the reality of duality is this. In the scriptures and in the New Testament, physical objects are often but a shadow of something that is spiritual. Now I've spent, if we've spent any time at all in church, we've all heard this term shadow used to describe many Old Testament things that Jesus would eventually transform into something of a higher order. It's just a shadow of things to come, we're told. Well, what does that mean? It's a shadow of things to come. See, a shadow is just an outline of something without all the details filled in. A shadow is real. It's not a mirage. It's not an optical illusion. But it's less real than the object that casts the shadow. Example. I stand out in the sun. I cast a shadow. I'm real. The shadow's real. But I am the source of the shadow. I'm the complete original. The shadow is a representation of me, but it's a very incomplete representation of me. Further, the shadow has no animation or power of itself. The shadow does not have life. It's stuck in absolute lockstep with me. The existence of my shadow is 100% dependent on my existence. If my shadow ceases to exist, I can still exist, right? Sun goes down, my shadow disappears, am I gone because my shadow's not there? No, I'm still here. But if I cease to exist, it's impossible for there to be a shadow of me. Therefore, I am preeminent. I am greater than my shadow. I'm not a manifestation of my shadow. My shadow is but an inferior manifestation of me. The shadow does not cause me. I cause the shadow. You following me here? 
when the physical and the spiritual attributes of many things exist simultaneously, it's the spiritual that came first and it's always preeminent to the physical. The spiritual is almost unlimited in its attributes and it operates in a number of dimensions. The physical, on the other hand, is severely limited as compared with the spiritual in its attributes. It can occur in no more than four dimensions. Remember, our entire universe consists only of four dimensions. Length, width, height, uh, rather depth, and time. Four. Therefore, the physical is inferior to the spiritual. And the physical can only partially mimic or reveal its true spiritual counterpart. Its true spiritual original. Now the creation of human beings is a fairly obvious example of this. Because humans are simultaneously creatures that consist of the material and the immaterial. The physical and the spiritual. The, that is, we are four-dimensional beings. Physical, visible, and subject to time. But we also have an invisible property as well. The Bible calls this invisible property soul and spirit. The ancient Hebrew sages point out that God formed Adam from the dust of the ground. He formed him from something physical. God created the universe from nothing, but he created man from something. Something physical. Isn't it nice to know that we started as dirt? <laughs> but he already brought that dirt into existence before us. But in addition, God put the breath of life into man, put into him a soul and a spirit, which are not physical things. They're spiritual. So whether mankind admits it or not, we are a prime example of the reality of duality. The creation of light and its attributes is another great example of this concept. No doubt, the light, this ore, made on the first day of creation was real physical light that was of a kind that at least allowed time to be measured. After all, three more days of creation passed before there were light emitting objects up in the sky. Yet mysteriously, it was also a type of light that did not come from physical objects because no object that emitted light was created or at least these objects weren't visible from earth until the fourth day. Further, because light is the opposite of darkness, and light is characterized by God as good, but darkness is not, we have a firm connection between the kind of light created here and its attribute of goodness. Look, good and evil are spiritual, not physical attributes. So this light, this ore, has a dual reality to it. 
it has both very, a very real physical quality and a very real spiritual quality. Now typically, men's doctrines just can't stand this type of a dilemma. All things must be one or the other. It can't be both simultaneously. Now, I'm telling you that not only can many created things be both physical and spiritual at the same time, they are both. In fact, matters such as the attributes of the type of light created on the first day must be both, or the first few verses of Genesis are nonsensical. It is this foundational principle that I term the reality of duality. It's where the physical and the spiritual elements of something exist simultaneously. And we're going to have many more examples of this that will over time start to make some more sense to you. In a year or so, when we get to the wilderness tabernacle, we're going to see one of the prime biblical examples of the reality of of duality. So, don't get concerned, at least for the moment, if you're thinking, is that guy even speaking English? Now, in verse 20, some statements are made for which I want to make a point that you should tuck away in your memory banks. And it concerns this list of living creatures that God created. It speaks of swarming creatures in the water and birds flying in the air. The Lord populated the oceans with giant sea creatures and he proclaimed all of these things to be good. Verse 24, he goes on to speak of land creatures of all kinds, domestic and wild, even crawling things like lizards. And he also declares these to be good. Now I emphasize this because later on in the Torah, mainly in Leviticus, we're going to find God enumerating several of these same creatures that he has named here, but he calls them unclean. And we'll also eventually see that long before the Torah was even given to Moses, clean and unclean designations of created things, created living things, that also already existed. So how is it that something can be both good and unclean at the same time? Did God change his mind? about some of these living creatures? Well, you can either wait a year or so to find out, or you can pick up some of the Torah class studies on Leviticus and jump ahead. But the core biblical principles of clean and unclean have their foundation here in the first chapter of Genesis. Well, next we get a statement that's been pondered by the greatest and most brilliant minds for thousands of years. And there's little agreement, after all that, as to exactly what it portends. It's the statement that we as human beings are made in the image of God. Now we're not going to spend much time here, but let me give you some basics to consider. 
First it says that God created humankind and later it says it was both male and female that he created and second that all humans were made in his image. So we can immediately show Darwin and all secular humanists the door. Because if this is not a true biblical statement, if we just evolved from chance and mutation of non-living substances, then there's really no point to even continue in this Torah study. I don't imagine I have any arguments from those of you in this room. But what does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means that we have been given certain attributes that he has. Yet we also know we certainly don't have all of his attributes because if we did, then we'd be gods too. Rather, God who values all the many types of living creatures he created made mankind unique among all of these creatures. Only man has the, cap- has the capacity to know God. And this capacity comes by means of that spiritual component he put within us. Animals can have bodies, they can have brains. They can even have something resembling emotions. Because many, but not all, animals have living souls, the seat of emotion and intellect. But only humans, among all of God's living creatures, have spirits. And it's our spirits that allow communion with the living God. Okay, We'll take up chapter 2 the next time we meet.